welcome to this episode of Modern Health with Dr. J. Before I introduce today's guests, I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you for tuning in and listening to this podcast. I so appreciate your messages, your comments, your likes, and your shares. It's so important to me to share my passion for health and well-being with all of you. So I appreciate you helping me spread the news. Okay, now let me introduce you to two very special guests that I have on today's show, Dr. Scott and Amy Norda. Dr. Scott is a board-certified family medicine physician trained in neuroscience and functional medicine. Amy, his wife, is a former creative director who jumped into the healthcare space after her husband graduated from medical school. They have since started a precision medicine health clinic created a step-by-step online program to combat brain fog and fatigue, and written a best-selling book called Power Couple Habits Together. In this episode, we talk about brain health and more specifically, cognitive decline like Alzheimer's, what signs and symptoms to look for while you're still young, and how we can treat it naturally. I'm so excited for you to learn from these wonderful people. They are a wealth of knowledge, They have such beautiful hearts, and they have some incredible freebies for you to check out after the episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to welcome you to the show. And uh, now that I've introduced you to the crowd, I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about who you are and uh, just say hello to my audience. Yeah, thanks, Jane. Thanks for having us on. So I'm Dr. Scott Norda. I have my wife, Amy, here with, the, with me today. And, hey. And uh, we are um, living in St. George, Southern Utah, the beautiful desert out here, red rocks, and, and love it, living the outdoor lifestyle. Uh, family medicine doctor, and Amy kind of runs our, our health design stuff. But what we do is uh, we run a functional medicine clinic here and then also ha- have a brain lift program, which has really be- become a big passion of ours as far as trying to help people overcome brain fog and fatigue and, and prevent uh, cognitive decline and all of those issues. So yeah, one of just briefly what, what kind of got me interested in that area of, of brain health was uh, I was working in North Carolina with people in assisted living and and memory care facilities and kind of seeing the end stages of those disease processes and how frustrating that was for patients and families. And, and then you're talking about, you're talking about things like Alzheimer's and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia and cognitive decline. And uh, about that same time, my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And so it kind of, uh, made me go back to my roots a little bit. I had studied neuroscience several years earlier and, and uh, sort of re, regained a passion for the brain and brain health and, and dove into that science and then got rejuvenated seeing that there is so much research coming out about how to prevent issues like that. And, and uh, so, yeah, we've, we've created a whole program around how to use tiny little habits each day to prevent major disease processes and reverse uh, issues like brain fog and fatigue. And so you can up your game, whichever uh, part of life you're in. So that's a little bit about who we are. (laughs) No, that's amazing. And that's exactly why I wanted to invite you guys because I was so, so we're part of the same mastermind group where we get to, you know, meet together once a week with another, a bunch of amazing doctors who, have these passions and developed programs to help people, you know, improve different areas of their life. So, you know, I focus on fertility and you're focusing on brain. And um, I've, I've been really excited to sit down and chat with you because there is a couple different things that I'm seeing in my practice. And I think that my audience is really gonna benefit from hearing from you guys. One is that my patient's parents are beginning to experience that Alzheimer's and, you know, cognitive decline. And the other thing is my actual patients are experiencing a lot more things like ADHD being developed at the age of 30, you know, or um, having poor memory or even things like OCD and anxiety. And I'm not sure if that ties in. So I'd love to have your, 
perspective here. So maybe we can split the podcast into these two topics. The first one uh, around the the older generation, if you will, that's now starting to feel that cognitive decline. And then the younger generation and what they can do. And is there a big difference in terms of what they should be doing? Sure, sure. You want me to go ahead and dive into those? Yeah, let's go. Perfect. You're the expert. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I might pull Amy in on a few of these too. Um, but I think we'll start with the older generation because that's kind of what drove my passion to begin with. Um, and I'll just share briefly. So I mentioned that my dad kind of went through that process. So it was diagnosed. Uh, and as is typical, the diagnosis came years after the rest of our family kind of had seen the signs, right? You start to see the warning signs and you hope that that's not really what's going on. But yes, um, Amy and I were living out of the state for several years before his diagnosis came. So we didn't get to see him on a regular basis. Uh, but when we got the diagnosis, of course, the doctor said, there's nothing we can do. Just kind of enjoy the rest of your uh, time that you have with him while he's still aware of who you are. And, and so I felt like I needed to kind of come and, and save the family and figure out what we could do for my dad. And so we dove into the research, like I mentioned, and, and found all this research around Alzheimer's disease. And, and a doc, Dr. Del Bredesen out of UCLA and his team were really the first doctors showing at that time reversal of, of Alzheimer's disease and not just symptomatically, but changes in brain volume and cognitive testing that's never been seen before. And so we were super excited, gathered all this research and basically just dumped it on my parents' lap and said, just do this. Right? Yeah, just do it, this. Really easy stuff. It's really easy. There's 200 pages of stuff. Just do that, right? And all these 50 supplements. And needless to say, it didn't work. And so it was a little bit of a slap in the face to realize, okay, it's not as easy as just giving people information. Um, my, my dad's taste buds had already changed. He didn't want to change the way he ate. My mom didn't love to cook. There were so many factors that played into it. Um, yeah. and he was already, uh, pretty far progressed. And so then we went back to the drawing board and said, okay, is there something else that we can do to kind of help that process? And that's when Amy and I actually wrote a book. We, we started to look, and that's when we also met uh, Dr. Isaac Jones and, and, uh, decided we wanted to write a book and kind of figure this process out of, of how to help people develop habits. Um, yes, that's you know, so powerful. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an easy thing in our minds, but it's a really hard thing to do in um, in person and in, in an everyday environment when we're already busy, right? To change what we're doing. Yep. Um, and so, maybe do you want to just talk a little bit about what that process was like of kind of writing the book and then how that has led to our program? Yeah. What one of the big things that we really saw, <clears throat> excuse me, is that. Um, a lot of times people struggle with, with making these changes with their family around them, right? If they feel like yes. they're only making these changes by themselves, it increases the stress and the, the tension in the family dynamic. And obviously stress is a major part of, of any brain health issues and, and so many physical health issues. And so um, adding stress is kind of counterproductive when we're trying to improve health. And so one of the things that we really focused on is that <clears throat> we need to build habits, healthy habits together with our families, especially with our spouses, you know? Um, yes. And so we really focused on that aspect of just picking some small things that you can start to change and see some momentum and some positive yes. shifts. And that gives you energy to keep making more changes and, and really while Scott was saying that it's, it is hard when you're busy and in the thick of things to make habit changes, a huge part of it is really just mindset and, and having that in your mind that I am changing, you know, and, yes. and if you have that at the forefront of your mind, like I am going to be different. Um, that's really the biggest first step is that you're open to change and you're open to improving and that you have that growth mindset. And so what we do is basically just give a little bit of education every day and say, 
hey, here is one thing that you can do today to, to make, to tip the scales a little bit, to make it a little bit easier for your body to detox, for your body to heal and for you to think and feel better. And that is something that if, if you can take that and make it a habit, it will make a big difference over time. And so each day we add those things and obviously everybody can't add all of the habits, but our goal is to find some things that resonate and stick and, and just to tip those scales a little bit and to focus on continuous growth. And in doing that, we can help get them to feeling better and motivated to continue on that path until they find that optimal space. Yeah. yeah. I so, was going to say, I love what you said about the mindset and having just that shift in like mm -hmm. the openness of like, I actually am ready to change. Yeah, because I find that that's the one of uh, the biggest blocks that we don't even realize that we have. Yeah. And uh -huh. what I wanted, because I always like to give my audience like, what are the three things that you need to look for? What are the top three things that you find? And even breaking it down, like, what is it? So the warning signs, you said there's some early warning signs, what are like the top warning signs that you see for somebody that you know that they're going to struggle with some sort of cognitive decline or, uh, you know, brain health issues. Yeah, I wish it was super easy with that one um, because <laughs> there's so much overlap, right? So yeah. like somebody might go through a really stressful time. They might go through COVID. They might go through a big life change. And sorry, yeah. do you mean like actually get COVID versus like the pandemic yeah, yeah. that all of us have been through? <laughs> right. We all might go through COVID. Yeah. Okay. Yes. COVID. Well, I guess both, right? It can be the stress of just worrying about the COVID world. Yes. Or we know that COVID itself, there's a post-COVID <clears throat> syndrome that creates yes. this sort of, for some people, this chronic ongoing brain fog that's difficult to concentrate. So the top symptoms are typically difficulty concentrating, focusing, thinking clearly, learning new things is a really big one. So if somebody's in their job and they're given a new responsibility and they just can't quite get there. So I had somebody just yesterday telling me that I, I switched positions. I've always done fine, but now trying to learn this new thing is really, really hard for me. Um, so that's and a big so, warning sign. If I can interrupt, because sometimes we associate that with just being older. Right. So at what stage does it actually mean that, hey, this is not normal? And I'm, you know, I'm doing quotations because we, I feel like as a society now, we've normalized so many things. Like it's normal to not, to feel like you're tired or brain foggy or whatever. So at what stage do you actually find that it is normal versus not normal and that it's a sign, a warning sign versus like, you know, it's, it's okay. That, that is what is supposed to happen. Yeah. So that's where I was saying it becomes tricky because to diagnose just by those symptoms, Alzheimer's disease, they're advanced at that point, because it's not just, I, I can't learn something new, but I can't like, I can't even process what's happening in the moment, right? So I, I can't make sense of the world around me. So oh, they wow. may like be able to hold a semi-normal conversation for a time, but then they can't really remember what they were talking about and what we discussed five minutes ago, even though, what, though they remember what happened 20 years ago. It's that new memory and sort of processing the incoming information <clears throat> in, all, in all areas. So they're driving, they can't remember where they were going, can't remember how to get home, but to get to that point in Alzheimer's disease, just by symptoms, you may be 20, 30 years into the diagnosis, right? So the, that's the, been the issue all along is we treat once they become so symptomatic that it's obvious that they have it. And so there's no easy turning point to say it's going from brain fog to something more concerning until it's so concerning that now you've definitely had it for a long time. And so we and uh, a lot of the, the leading researchers in Alzheimer's disease are saying you, you really can't wait. You can't just say, well, I'm going to wait until this symptom definitely matches a dementia or an Alzheimer's to say, all right, now let's do something about it. Right. Yeah. So um, what what I love that Dr. Del Bredesen started this term called doing a cognoscopy. 
every um, so often, right? So for people over a certain age, like 40, 45, every three to five years, they're doing a cognoscopy, like a colonoscopy, where you're doing maybe an MRI that has volume scans to assess the, the uh, sizes of the memory centers in the brain. You're doing a cognitive test. You're doing some lab testing. And all of that combined with um, just what other people are seeing and what you're feeling yeah. becomes your sort of uh, regular check-in. And so then it's easy to see, like we may see some objective changes on a, on a cognitive decline or a cognitive screening test that goes really in depth that they're never going to show symptomatically for another five years, you know? Yeah. And so do you, is this like the cognoscopy? I love that term. That's amazing. Is yeah. this something that you recommend for everyone to do? Absolutely. Or like after the age of 40 versus like if you have Alzheimer's running in your family. So like, do you do genetic testing and do you like, is there any value to that? Absolutely. Yeah. So genetic testing is a big part of that. So I think we, we eventually will treat it like we do colon cancer, which is if you have a family member who's had colon cancer, especially at a little bit younger age, you're going to screen at least 10 years before for colon cancer. We may say you're, you're going to screen at least 20 years or, or more before that family member was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. You'll start your cognoscopies. But I would say everybody should do it because we now know that it's not only genetically driven. There are so many environmental factors that can cause it, even if you don't have a genetic risk. Yeah. So. And then the genetic risk is just like that just amplifies it, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be Alzheimer's free just because of what we're seeing in our environment is what I'm Yeah. Cool. And so that actually really brings me to the next point that we were going to talk about is, so there is these warning signs. They're not super clear and, you know, and we, we kind of dropped this off, but like learning a new scale. So at what age would you say that when you're having a really hard time learning a new scale, when would you say that that's more of a problematic thing? At any age, age, honestly. Any age? So okay. if like now, even in your 60s is what I'm yeah. saying, because, you know, like in your 60s, I, my mom is like, I don't want to learn this. And it's like, I know you don't want to learn this, but then like there's a difference between you don't want to do it versus like it's actually really hard for you. Right. And I should clarify. Right. So like technology is a little bit of a different beast. Like if yeah. somebody's never touched technology and they, and they struggle trying to pick it up, that might be a little different area. But let's say it's something that you would expect them to be able to learn. So similar in line with what other things they've learned during their life okay. and you give them a new task and they just cannot pick it up. Right. So we're not saying like somebody decides I'd really love to learn about how to fix a car and they know, have no idea how to do it. Right. And they struggle to, to do this new skill or, or gain this new knowledge. That's, I, I would say a little different beast than, than saying I, have been an artist my whole life and I love to draw. Now I'd love to just learn to, I don't know, learn something new about art and then they can't do it. Right. So I, I would say learning a new skill or new knowledge in something that's at least related to, or should be something you should learn. Yeah. And I mean, even using the example that you use with a mechanic, like if you're a mechanic, but you need to learn a different part about being a mechanic and it's just like, it's not, uh, it's not registering. Is exactly. that basically what it feels like? It's just not registering what yep. you're doing. Yeah. So I, I've had so many conversations with people where they, you know, it's usually work related. So they're working maybe into their sixties and they start to see like, I'm getting these new tasks and usually I could just pick it up and I would be fine. You know, maybe they're an accountant and and usually they get a new account and they should be able to just jump right on it. And all of a sudden they just can't and they can't figure out why their brain won't stay on top of it. So, okay. yeah. No, that's very, that's very clear. Good. And that's, so that, that brings me to my, the next point that you kind of mentioned that we talked about is this younger population that's getting diagnosed with, and I mean, I'm not even talking about kids. Cause I think that that's, that's even a different beast that we're dealing with now, but people who are like in their thirties or late twenties getting diagnosed with ADHD. 
Because to me, I'm like, isn't that really late to get a diagnosis? And like, why would that come on now? And so there's some myths around like you're born with it or, you know, can you, can you talk us through that? Yeah, that's, um, you know, there's, I would say multiple parts to that. Like there are some people who had it their whole life, kind of figured out how to make it work and then get the diagnosis later when they have to do something that's more challenging and it becomes obvious they definitely have ADHD and, and you talk to them and they're, maybe one of their parents had it and they've always struggled with it. So that's maybe a little bit different, but even those people, ADHD in general, I would say, number one, there's frequently a genetic component to it, but genetics in a way that actually gives us something to do about it. So there are some diseases where you're genetically prone. There's not a whole lot we know how to fix with that. ADHD is not one of those. We know that there are specific genes that we can actually go in, uh, do the genetic test and say, okay, you're not methylating, for example. Let's go ahead and skip the enzyme steps that require that methylation activation of B12 and folate, give you the methylated form, and then watch and see how your brain performs. Um, and there are several genes like that. They may not be detoxifying very well. And so if we can find the specific genetic needs, and especially if it runs in a family, genetics are going to be a big component of that. And then try to fit in their needs with, with what they're missing in their life. Yeah, so, and you're talking more about like the epigenetics, right? Like the environment turning on the genetics. So, because there's a couple things that you said with the gen, what are the triggers for those genetics to turn on? Like what are the most common triggers that you're seeing? Yeah, I think, so I mentioned if they're not detoxifying well, right? So if yeah. they've been in, for example, I'm thinking of a couple of patients um, who work in an environment where they're around a lot of toxins. So uh, one of them is a painter, and the other one uh, was worked in uh, some type of like cabinet manufacturing, I think. Um, and so they're just around a lot of chemicals. And so in that environment, all of a sudden they, they start to build up these toxins and chemicals and it shifts their brain. And so what you're saying is true. It's more of an epigenetic where maybe they had the genetic risk factors all along. But epigenetically, because of their environment, they were fine until they got into an environment where they were full of uh, toxins, and then it flipped those genes on, and they start to struggle with their brains. Um, so and that's so, one. Like, that's a really neat concept, because I think people just kind of assume, and like I like the word trigger that you use, because there's always a trigger, right, that causes... Yeah the health issue. And I always explain it to my patients, like it feels like it's an overnight thing, but there's actually this accumulation of stuff that happens before. And then there's just this, a trigger that pulls it. And I call it like the bucket just spills, like there's an overflow and the body's no longer able to compensate. So, and the environmental toxins, like people, I know you talked about painters and someone like who's working with chemicals, but we're seeing that in just regular population now too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so like, where are those toxins? Like what are some people could be looking for to be like, it's causing this, you know, I didn't realize that it's causing my brain not to function well. And I'm not a painter and I'm not a, I'm just a guy who sits in my office all day or a girl sitting in my mm -hmm. office all day, you know, doing work. Yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately <clears throat> the number of toxins that are poured into our environment just continues to grow every year. And a lot of them we don't yet recognize as a toxin. So uh, some of that we don't know, but some of that's going to be like the pesticides. So it may be a stay-at-home mom who's hanging out with her kids, but her, her house is getting sprayed outside with pesticides uh, or herbicides on a somewhat regular basis. And especially if they're genetically prone to not be able to eliminate those toxins very well, they don't need a lot of exposure or a high amount of exposure all at once. It can be a slow accumulation over time. So that's an, that's an easy one. Just at home cleaners, for example. So the chemicals we clean with every day uh, are one that's an easy one, again, for to make some changes. There are a lot of great products out there that you can just completely change what you're exposed to all the time. Oh, one big one is anything with fragrance, right? Mm, yeah. Like we're, we're so like, um, hyper stimulated in our society by like wanting to, everything to smell good, you know, the lotions, the soaps, the, the wallflowers that you plug in and make your house <laughs> smell a certain way. Uh, all those things are just putting chemicals 
straight on our bodies or straight into our noses and yep. and those things can really build up fast and accumulate and and cause a lot yeah, there's of something there's something about the being afraid of smelling like bo right <laughs> but, which is actually a sign that you're toxic right you're really smelly right mm-hmm Okay, yeah. so we got environmental toxins. What, give me, you know, two more triggers that you typically see that makes that bucket overflow. Um, so I would say one of them is stress, right? So that would be just something that we tend to be faced with quite a bit. And I would say most of us aren't trained to deal with stress very well. Yes. Um, so it's not that the stress itself is bad, right? We are actually meant as, as human beings to be able to go through stress and stretch and grow. And our, certainly our internal bodies are created in a way to deal with acute stress. But when that stress becomes a chronic daily thing that you're facing either in a relationship, at work, um, something else, then, then it's, it becomes something you either have to do uh, some way of releasing it every day, like a, a relaxation technique or some type of training, or it just builds up and creates these issues. So we actually see like inflammatory markers go up, hormones change, your brain changes, your sleep cycles change. So many things are affected by that. And certainly that changes your epigenetics. So stress is a huge one. It's, uh, I love what you said about like, we're not actually trained how to deal with stress. And I think like, I'll take that even further. I think that most of us think that we shouldn't be stressed, that mm -hmm. like we shouldn't have this level of stress or we shouldn't. Yeah. Like we don't, we don't need to overcome, like there just shouldn't be any stress. You just need to avoid versus, it. Yeah. Like it, there should just be nothing as opposed to, I need to learn how to build a resilient system and then incorporate you know, techniques to relax. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it sounds nice to just hang out on the beach every day, but <laughs> it's hard to grow a lot that way. So <laughs> no, that's it. And I do, I, that's another portion is what you say. It's like, we're, are meant to grow, right? We are meant to, to have that experience to actually grow. Otherwise it's boredom, depression, anxiety, whatever, however it manifests for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just mention briefly that as a side note, maybe that that's what we see happening in a lot of kids today is that parents don't allow their kids to have hard things and stress and let them kind of work through it in a safe environment. And they don't train them on how to overcome stress. And so it leads to those things you just said, depression and anxiety and the ADHD and everything else actually gets worse when what we're trying to do as parents is shelter them and help them and give them a nice life. And we end up maybe causing more problems. So that's, you are speaking my language. That is so fast. I'm so glad that you said that um, because I find, so like I grew up in Russia and, mm. you know, up until I was 12 years old and like, we grew up rate like growing our own food like life wasn't like you know it was communist and then the communist collapsed and we moved in 98 so there was a lot going on and it was just like it was a hard life yeah. but you had to you just like I didn't know any different you know what I'm saying and now I see kids and even with my own daughter it drives me nuts at like, you know, at four years old, she can barely wipe her own butt. And I was like going to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like this coddling and very aware, but it's fascinating that you said that it's actually, you know, impacting us as adults. And we're seeing basically what I'm hearing is like, we're seeing more depression and anxiety as adults because of us not having the right tools when we're parenting. Like, is that basically Absolutely. what, yeah. Yeah. And I, <laughs> As a parent who frequently feels like we're not doing enough, I certainly am not trying to pour the guilt onto the parents yes. in a way to say, like, you failed your kids, yes, but yes. in a way to say, like, let's empower our kids by giving them difficult situations, right? Or allowing them to struggle a little bit, especially when they're younger, so they learn to develop that resilience that you're talking about. Yes. No, and that's, and that's, Exactly. So now as we kind of get from like, okay, here are the triggers, here are the warning signs. 
Now, what do we, what can we actually do? Cause that's, that's my goal always is like, here's the, the piece that's really cool because what you said earlier in the podcast, uh, you know, around your dad's story, it's like, hang around, see what happens. Like just enjoy him while he's still with you. And that's yeah. probably one of the most like difficult things to, to hear. Right? right. It's like, okay, great. It's you're so hopeless and helpless. And we're in this medicine that we know that there's different options. Yeah. And so, you know, let tell me about those. Let's empower our people now. <laughs> sure. And I think, you know, just quickly, let me answer the question that you had asked earlier. And I forgot to answer, which was also, is there a time at which it's too late, like for the older oh, generations, yes. right? And the answer is no. That's the amazing thing about the research is the plasticity in the brain goes throughout the entire life. And so, you know, if, if somebody's too far advanced with Alzheimer's disease, a lot of these changes are hard to implement. But if you are still trying to work to prevent, there's never a, a too late of a time to start that process, right? So that's amazing. No, so thank you. Let's get and like, what are the changes that you do see? Because again, I have some patients who have their parents who are going through this and it's like, wait and see, like they're just enjoy them while they're here. What are some of the things that people can actually do to and like what are the changes that you might notice by implementing those things yeah i mean so amy talked about like simple things right so you're going to take one little thing like maybe their favorite thing my dad's was soda right he drank he kept pepsi in business he just yes. he drank himself <laughs> some pepsi every day and so making a small change to say like let's find maybe a fermented like water kefir or kombucha or something that has some benefits to it and start to drink less soda and more of this probiotic drink right and and so like starting to implement little tiny changes he loves milkshakes let's start to make like a blueberry smoothie with some greens in it every day and slowly decrease the amount of sweet that's in it and so he gets used to that so i think changes like that that have like foods that are loaded with antioxidants, probiotic benefits. You can start to shift the gut bacteria, which interacts with the brain. And none of these changes are going to be an overnight thing, right? But they are going to be over months. You start to notice like maybe he's actually not quite as upset or moody, or he's remembering a little bit more than he usually does. So uh, yeah, I think those are the things you watch for is like, the emotionality and mood stuff, um, state yeah. how stable they feel. And you're saying within a month, because so here is the thing that again, I think that there is like a disbelief that it's going to work or that it is working. And so there's two components to that. A, they're maybe not sticking to it or not consistent enough, or B, they don't know what signs to look for, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're saying within a month's time, implementing these small changes, which honestly, like having a nice blueberry smoothie instead of a milkshake, like sure, <laughs> milkshake might, but as your taste buds change the benefits. So like, that's a really small change. And then within a month's time of doing that, you're going to notice some changes or you should. Yeah, I would say a month or a couple of months, right? It kind of depends yeah. on like where they're at and um how willing they are to make changes, but certainly if you, and that's where like working with somebody who's trained in knowing what to watch for and can do the more in-depth testing, because sometimes the changes show up in the tests before they show up symptomatically. Um, but if, the, if somebody's in the very earliest stages and they implement these, they themselves often will see the changes within the first few months. That's amazing. And so yeah, it's so worth it. It's just, it, it takes some effort and most people need somebody there kind of helping them and keeping them motivated. Like Amy said, it's, it's best if it's a spouse or somebody that's working with you. And then you have a provider who can kind of watch you and support you. And we love having health coaches that, that uh, work with our patients because it, I just feel like the more support, the better. Right. So anyway, there, yeah, and there's are, a lot of demand on the family, right. When you get a diagnosis of, um, also like from my understanding and all the patients that I've had who have experienced, like it's, it's a big shock to the family. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So do you want me to keep going down that road or should we? Yeah, it's like, what was the, I don't even remember the other question that I asked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just like you're asking about the ADHD in this, in the younger populations now. Um, and I think just kind of where we, where we go from there, as far as like, what can we do? We've, t- we set yeah. the stage as far as what causes the ch- epigenetic changes, but now what can we do? Yeah. I mean, honestly, um, Scott, I'd love for you to just tell us like, what is it that we need to know about this? Cause you're the expert. And if you feel very strongly and passionately about sharing something, like I'm all ears, I've just I've loved what you have said, and I'm just kind of bouncing back some more information because that's what I want to know. But also I'm like, probably my patients will, or like my audience will have that same question. Sure. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we notice with ADHD and Alzheimer's disease, I would say with all these cognitive issues, there's an overlap. So Kind of bigger picture first. The idea is we set the stage in the brain to stop whatever process is causing the symptoms or worsening the symptoms. So getting out of the environment of the toxin, kind of decreasing that toxic overload, if that's the issue, if there's an infection or inflammation, uh, lots of stress, all of those things, we're going to first try to take out the causes of it, recognize and remove the causes of it. If there's a micronutrient deficiency, we're going to try to fix that. We're going to try to balance hormones. Uh, We're going to try to make sure somebody's sleeping well, right? So we set the stage with all of those things first. We're making sure somebody's exercising and has an outlet. and, And then once we feel like, okay, the brain's stable, it's not sort of on fire, then we can start to push the brain. And so that's where the cognitive training becomes really helpful. And interestingly, the cognitive training can be the same for a lot of these different conditions. So we use Brain HQ as primarily for our cognitive training. And the idea is that you try to stretch the brain to do something that it has a hard time doing, right? So we've already kind of found the the problems that are causing it. We've set the stage so the brain's ready to make new connections, and then we just push it, and the brain will do it amazingly, right? So we just, we fit that genetic need, we took away the the problems, and then we say, okay, now let's make you learn something. And so 15 to 30 minutes a day, more if you can, but really, even if you did 15 minutes a day, which anybody can do, right, and you start to push your brain, and it's like, almost fun games that you never quite win. So it's kind of frustrating, <laughs> but it, it does push you. And so if you look back, you can kind of watch your progress, but it stretches you on, it, it kind of finds your areas of weakness and then it pushes you to do them faster and faster and faster. Yeah, and I mean, I'm in the training world. I used to do a lot of personal training. My husband and I own a gym. So it sounds like mm. basically doing fitness for the brain. Yeah, for sure. Exactly what it is. Okay. <laughs> and you're yeah. building a little bit of resiliency every time. And right. Is, is that the, so That's then it. do you do that? Like I, I, I can do that and I'll just benefit from it. But like, will I have more focus? Will I have more? Yeah. Yeah. They've done studies on depression. They've done studies on ADHD uh, and anxiety and and then just in the general population to just to see in a healthy 60, 70 year old, what would happen if you just did this training every day, right? And they've found that you can actually uh, lower your cognitive age by up to 30 years by doing this on a really regular basis for six months. So anyway, it, it's really cool. It's not the only program out there. It does have a ton of research behind it. I love Dr. Merznick, who is kind of the, the brain behind uh, starting it and, and all of that. So yeah, I, I love that idea. Go this ahead. program that you talked about, like, is this just something exclusive to you guys or is this something that everybody has access to? Yeah, everybody does. And it's really not that expensive. You can do it on your phone as an app or on your iPad or computer or whatever. Um, so, and yeah. what's it called one more time? We will put it in the show notes, but it's brain HQ brain HQ. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. That's very good. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, what you were saying is overlaps so well, right? This idea of fitness. So the same thing happens if like somebody has an injury, right? To a muscle and you kind of have to like find the technique that they're doing that's causing the injury and stop them from doing that mm-hmm. and fix their technique 
and then they build and build right and it does become like sometimes you're you work and work and you never quite get there wherever you're going right because you can always do better and more and more but the idea is that along the way you're stretching and growing and and with the brain it's not only like growing new nerve cells but it's new connections and strengthening connections and so anyway yeah and what i'm hearing from that because you're definitely speaking my language again but it's like it's having somebody so like using the gym example somebody will say like oh my knees always hurt when i squat and i know Mm -hmm. it's not because they don't need to squat it's because they're not squatting correctly and so what i'm hearing from this is that's like you actually will benefit much it's not that you won't benefit from doing squats on your own sure you will but you're much more likely to quit or so it's actually having this like accountability, right? And having a, a professional that you're working with. Yeah, to yeah, kind of look into your situation. Your programs. Right, right. Yeah. And, and to see like, you know, we can say to everybody out there, like squatting is good, right? Yes. But then people are going to go out and hurt themselves or they might try it and be like, no, squatting hurts. <laughs> it's no fun, <laughs> right? And give up. Yeah, uh, and so... The, the idea is the same with your brain. You can go out and try to push your brain and you might actually feel worse at first because it's full of toxins. And so you're trying to push your brain through something while it's super inflamed. And so you have to find somebody who can help you kind of clear out those problems first and set the stage so then it's ready to grow. That's amazing. And so, I mean, I honestly, that kind of wraps it up because I'd love to hear a little bit more about your brain lift program. Like, what do you guys include? What do you do? What are your assessments? Um, How intimately do you work with people? And, uh, you know, where can people find you? Yeah. You want to talk about that? Uh, Yeah, we we've kind of broken our program down into multiple levels because we really we really, really, really want to share this information with as many people as we can, because it, it really isn't out there at all. You know, Mo, like probably 99.9% of people have no idea that it's not normal to not remember things well, or to, to have a clear mind or to be able to focus, you know, and, or to not be able to focus. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I mean, that's the whole, like we're normalizing it. Uh-huh. You know, like yep. you, the, I, I do a lot of posts on social media and it's like the maximum amount of time that somebody can focus is seven seconds. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, you want me to give you a video of information for seven seconds? Yeah. Like, Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but that's right. Like we live in an ADHD society, if you will. So you're Very right. Much. Like people don't even have any idea that there's actually something to do about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in our effort to really share that and, and to empower people, um, we've kind of broken our, our program up into different levels where for somebody that's super motivated and, and they just want the information and they're just going to take it and run with it, we have this a DIY program that's a really low cost. Um, and then we also have a health coach-led program where they have weekly accountability. They check in and have a call with their coach and with their group that they're working with. And so they have that community feel, which sometimes is really helpful for people that may not have their spouse on board or, or their family on board, but they are still incredibly motivated and they need somebody to help them and be accountable to. Um, and then for people that really wanna dive in and see exactly what their unique factors are risk factors and and go through all the labs and do that cognoscopy and really go deep um, and make some major changes then we can do one-on-one stuff but 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 really that's it's just we just want to share this information with people we just want to be able to help people to to be with their families and living their lives for and impacting people for a lot longer than and to be having joyful lives not not stuck in brain fog and fatigue and unable to, to live out their dreams and their goals. And, and so that's also why we wrote our book. It's just, you know, give away all of our information that we can because it makes the world a better place when, when families and, and individuals are resilient. And how do we, how do people get a hold of us and kind of get a, become a Yeah, no, I mean, I was going to say, even with the free book, I won't let the download, we'll have that in the show notes and so Mm -hmm. gracious of you guys to do that. And Mm -hmm. I remember the first time that I met you and I mean, now I haven't met you in person, Mm 
<laughs> but the first time I logged on to that epic call and you guys have this like radiance about you. And then now you told me before the notes that it's the, your lighting. <laughs> oh, it's also your hearts. I know that it's your hearts you. and your passion and, you know, the kindness that you and you have a story behind it, which we heard about why you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, I'm, I'm the same way. It's like I have my story and I want to let people know and when I communicate with my future patients and my audience, it's like most people have no idea. And yeah. then um, I think the difference between getting something like a free download, sure, if you're really motivated, you're gonna, like there's a ton of free information out there. Mm -hmm. But then if you know yourself and you know you're not gonna do anything about it, here is the other steps because let's not downplay these symptoms. Let's mm -hmm. look at what's possible if you do something about it, but also what could happen if you don't do something about it, right? And there's a so, big, there's a big neuroscience aspect to that too, right? Like the more that we value something, the more potential it has to change us. And so gathering a lot of free information can be very helpful if you really value your brain health. Yes. Um, but sometimes people need that value by investing a little bit and mm -hmm. investing some like mental capital in, okay, I'm accountable to this person. They're going to check on me. I better make sure I did something, you know? And so that, that can be extremely helpful just from a neuroscience perspective to have that accountability, somebody, somebody to keep you on track, tell you exactly what road roadmap to take and how to get there and yeah. how to reach those goals. I agree. It's funny. Like one of the things that I've been telling my patients, cause I'll have people who come and they're like, I'm healthy. Like, I know I'm already healthy and it's like, okay, I know you're healthy, but like, here's what's going on. So let's put the ego aside right. <laughs> because mm -hmm. there's actually something going on and that's why you're here. And it's not that it's either like health or disease. There's a big spectrum of health. And if you want to be healthy, and again, I'm doing quotations, like here's what healthy people spend money on right? It's like, mm -hmm. I spend money on upgrading my environment. I spend money on mentorships, or I spend money on lab tests. I spend money on supplements. So it's, it's almost like teaching people of what it actually takes. And like, there is a spectrum of health. There's, it's not. And so if you are healthy, but you're not really happy with where you're at, that means there's a way to move that needle forward. And mm -hmm. here's how we can do that. And I, like, I a hundred percent agree with you, Amy, if there's no like no skin in the game, you're not going to do it. Why would you do it? Your attention span is seven seconds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe you 15 if you're like, you know, a go-getter. But um, yeah, so I, I want to, you know, tell me kind of where, because again, the links will be in the show notes, but tell, tell me where we can find you uh, or even follow you, get more information if people are curious. Yeah, our website is brainliftprogram.com. And yeah, I'll I'll send you all of our like Instagram and Facebook handles and, and yep. we try to share information on there. So yeah, and then basically they can uh either book or contact you through there if they're interested mm -hmm. in working with you. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Is there anything else that you guys feel like you I've missed? I didn't ask you and you're like feel super passionate and like I need to share this with the world. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I think we've already shared, but the idea is that there's something we can do about it. That's, that's really our big message, right? Because that's not the message that was given to, to my family. That's not the message that's given to a lot of families with this, uh, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or knowing like, well, my dad had, like, my dad had Alzheimer's and his grandma had Alzheimer's. And so I'm just doomed to this. Um, and, and I guess one last thing, yeah, would be we're seeing so much after COVID uh, that's causing the people who had COVID who have this chronic fatigue and brain fog, and they just feel like this is a new thing and we don't know what to do about it. And we've found, we've, we dove into the research again, and luckily the, there's been quite a bit on post-COVID fatigue and brain fog. And we're finding that the, the elements of our brain lift program go hand in hand with making the same changes in the brain. And so we've, we've added a few aspects in, but ultimately what makes your brain healthy is what makes your brain healthy, right? And a lot of it overlaps. And so if you're finding that you are just struggling at work or at home or don't have the same energy and, and mental energy and, and clarity, um, 
you're not alone, number one. It's a huge part of this post-COVID syndrome, um, but there's something we can do about it. For sure. And so like to clarify, it's not just because this is one of the triggers is like being in a pandemic for two years. So being right. under high stress. And then uh, for some people, it's like the isolation and even like wearing masks, right? Depending on where you are in the world, because now you're not oxygenating on the same level. So that's that's not the portion that you're even talking about. You're talking about like when you actually have COVID, there's an inflammatory response that goes off and, you know, adds to the bucket, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And we were, I assumed for a while that it was just going to be a short-term thing, but imaging actually that there was a study that came out this earlier this week that showed actual volume changes in the brain. Um, oh, wow. you know, some expected like the, uh, the smell and taste centers of the brain, actually you'll see physical changes in, in volume, but some of the memory changes too. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty nasty disease for some people. It triggers an inflammatory response, and maybe there's a genetic component that we haven't fully uh, figured out yet on that. But, but definitely there's, I mean, the, all the elements you mentioned play into it, but ultimately the infection itself can cause it. And I mean, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too much, but what about with <laughs> vaccinations? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we- uh, Let's open that can of worms for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, you know, this is where you would love to have a complete non-biased discussion with people, right? So I would love for all of the research to be opened up to show exactly what happens and to be able to study those things. And unfortunately, those studies will never happen. But we will, we can just sort of look at what we're seeing. And we're, we're seeing, um, I think the numbers I saw yesterday were it's about 91% of the population between 60 and 75 that's been vaccinated in the United States. And the numbers of that, that group of people coming in with brain fog and memory concerns has dramatically increased. Um, so we can maybe say there's a connection there. And, and certainly in the short term, we hear a lot of people saying, ever since I got the vaccine, my mind has just not been as clear. My energy hasn't been as good. So it does seem to affect the mitochondria that affects our energy in the brain and in our body. Yeah. So in that's, I mean, that's fascinating. And I want to kind of bring you back to the point of the things that you do for COVID to help, like if you've had the infection, is there something that you could do to not have the infection impact you as much? um so Is not get that, like that yeah so like not to have as many effects on the on the brain yeah yeah a few different things i mean number one is like we put people through some super high high dose vitamins and nutrients uh, as soon as we know that that they have symptoms and we keep them on for a longer term uh so that's super high dose vitamin d Usually it's 50,000 units twice a day for the first five days. And then they stay on 50,000, at least a few times a week for a while. And it's, so it's funny, like I'll do that in viral infections for, you know, two or three days. And people take like when they're, they're like, yeah, I take vitamin D. And then how much do you take? They're like 2000 I use. I was like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> like this, when you run the lab work and you see what that's like, hey, this 2000 I use like is not doing anything for yeah. you. It's so just like a hundred thousand I use for five days. Yep. Right. Right. Okay. Five days, yeah. <laughs> so and basically like, you know, boosting the immune system and helping the body go through the infection a little bit quicker. Is that exactly. So there's like those general nutrients, right? A mm -hmm. and C and zinc and quercetin and, mm -hmm. and NAC or NAC, which the FDA thought was a bad idea to keep on the shelf. <laughs> Terrible. Um, it's yeah, NAC is super, super beneficial for COVID, both in the short and the long term. Um, but then there are other things that we're seeing as far as fixing that mitochondrial deficit. So I mentioned that COVID seems to have like a, a toxic effect on the mitochondria. And yeah. so uh, certain mitochondrial boosters like carnitine and uh, a whole bunch of different things. So yeah, the, the short answer, I guess, is yes, there are several things that you can do to really kind of prevent those or minimize those effects that you're going to get afterwards. Cool. And, you know, tell me if I'm hearing this wrong, because I find like in the health field, it's a lot of the same stuff. 
right? Like I need you to not have really high sugar, like whether you have diabetes or Alzheimer's, we're going to treat similarly up to maybe like 80%, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other 20 is where it's more specific to the genes. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's it, for any condition, just about right for heart disease, it, it's most likely going to be, if it's good for your heart, it's good for your brain, it's good for your muscles. So most of it, yeah, it's very much overlapping. Yeah. And this is just my own curiosity around the mitochondria in the brain. What, how many, like how much, cause I know mitochondria is really like, there's a lot of it in the muscle. What's in the, is that, is the brain the next yeah. So Next brain for the most amount of mitochondria that we can find in the body. Yeah. The heart. Yep. The heart has the most, but yeah, mm-hmm. brain is, is up there as, as, uh, one of the top users of, of mitochondria for sure. And, and one of the first organs that's affected by some type of mitochondrial dysfunction. And interestingly, people will get it symptomatically in different ways. So it might be brain fog. That's the most common, but it might be headaches or it might be anxiety or depression, right? So it can happen. It can create different symptoms in different people. Yeah, and what about migraines? I know I'm like very up here, we're gonna wrap it up, but like migraines, that's another thing that I hear and you know, there's a big hormonal connection, but you know, and environmental toxins, but just because migraines are different than headaches. Right, exactly, yeah, for sure. Mitochondria seem to play a major role in that for some people. Yeah, so just doing some digging. Just doing some digging. Okay. Is there anything else before we jump into the final five? No, I think that's good. Okay. That's awesome. Um, so here, this is the final five questions that I like to, you know, ask at the end of the interview. They're basically just designed to be this one word or one sentence and um, tells me a little bit more about yourself. And I just find it's, it's a fun way to finish off the interview. You Ready. Ready. All right, let's do it. So what is the best advice about health that you have ever received? Um, that's a good question. There's so many things that shoot into my head right away, right? Um, yeah, I know. And none of them are one word. And very few of them are really short. You've already surpassed the one word limit. That's all right. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, um, I would say for me, the, the idea of building resilience. So doing something now to prepare for the future and building a resilience so you're ready to achieve your goals. That's amazing. I love it. Building resiliency, doing something now so you can achieve. That's, that speaks to my heart. Okay. What is the worst advice about health that you have ever received? Drink fat-free milk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's Amazing. Um, what is your own personal health biohack right now that you're doing and that you swear by? Uh, powerful morning routines for me. Yeah. And can you tell me like a quick, what, what is your powerful morning routine? How long does it take you? Uh, so I get out of the bed, jump into our sauna, our infrared sauna. I usually do kind of my, my morning scripture study in there and meditation and kind of plan out the day mentally and then get out of there, exercise cold. Um, so I do a cold shower or uh, do t- some type of cold and then cold immersion. Uh, yeah. cold immersion. Uh, we have a freezing cold pool right now that I get into um, <laughs> and then start the day with a good, healthy breakfast. So that process for me takes anywhere from an hour to, I mean, 40 minutes to an hour, hour and a half, depending on how long I need. That's amazing. I feel healthier just listening to that. (laughs) That's really good. Um, Okay. Tell me what is your purpose uh, and your mission right now? Hmm. One word. I think empowerment. Yeah, I, I think so too. Just giving people tools, that idea of empowerment or giving people tools to know there's something they can do. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I mean, I can, I can feel that off the screen for you guys. Um, and last one, if there was one thing that you could tell everyone to do and they had to do it, what would that be? You know, I, 
again, there's probably a lot of answers out there. For me lately, I would say a big one is connections, connecting with people in a meaningful way. Uh, the research is amazing as far as the health benefits, brain benefits, but I think what we saw in COVID really amplified that. And I think we need to reverse all of that and reconnect as, as a community, as relationships in our families and with others. That's beautiful. And like truly connect, right? I think we've kind of replaced this social media with connection and it's like, it's really not the same thing, right? No. And you said it makes a big difference and we didn't even touch on that, but it actually has an impact on our brain. Massive impact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Scott and Amy, thank you so much for being here. You guys, I have just loved hearing all of the information. I'm excited to share this episode with my audience and the free download book and where people can find you. So thank you again for taking the time. I really I appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank right. you. It's so Jane. fun to talk with you. <laughs> Thank right. you. See, See you. you.